Welcome to Tuesday Home Time and welcome to June with Jan Bartlett. Not only the beginning of winter, but more importantly, it's Radiothon Month. Our Radiothon program is in in a couple of weeks, so please think about how you can help us reach our target to keep 3CR on air for our 45th year. But today, update on Burma with human rights activist based in Thailand, Debbie Stothart. The reasons for the political impasse in Samoa, talking to Nick McClellan. Part two of the history of Chile with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. Australia's long support for Sri Lanka and the impact of that on the Tamil population with Barathon. West Papua in great danger as Indonesia ramps up terror with Ronnie Coretti. But first, Mr Kevin Ealy with his week. That was... A week, Jane, listener, when, as we muse, cocooned in our homes, we'll accept those who have no home but who are locked down in their favourite little windswept gutter or frost-coated park bench. We all know where the blame for this latest attack on normal society lies, and if we have any doubts, just absorb the wisdom of Lord Rupert of Wapping, whose Wapping sin has fingered the culprit so irrefutably, the pejorative Dan. Okay, he's recovering from a serious back injury, he's on sick leave, and and okay, okay, the latest breakout emanated from a quarantine breach in South Trublowazia, and okay, the federal lot, Big Supremo scuttled them more, Ashson, a.k.a. Scummo and the gang, might have abandoned their responsibility for effective quarantine, and well, okay, okay, scuttled them and and co might have stuffed up the vaccine program, but they can in no way be blamed for this lockdown. It's all down to Dan. And if we have the slightest doubt, just read the whopping sin. 160 days and counting, it screamed Friday. Melburnians are enduring their 160th day in lockdown. The government plunges Victoria into new, new shutdown. Note 160th, when it's actually, unless my maths are worse than I thought, actually day five or six, but note enduring plunges, just reporting the facts, and the facts point fairly and squarely to the pejorative Dan, showing how an evil leader can spread his, in this case, his evil, while lying flat on his back. Moving from an international pandemic to what's really important, one matter that must be upsetting the Lord Rupert team is their footy tipping page. 27 tipsters every Friday, most of them the so-called experts who daily fill page after page with in-depth footy reporting, and the odd guest, including one of Dan's ministers, who, what tragedy for the Lord Rupert team, who is leading they're so-called experts who discuss football like it's more important than anything else in the whole world are all trailing in his wake. On matters less important, the Socialist Party is between the right, proper appellation, and what's laughingly called the left, wrong, wrong appellation, over whether or not to support tax cuts for the filthy rich. Speculation that it will not oppose them because that would alienate the filthy rich and the filthy rich then wouldn't vote for them. And thanks to such socialist principles, hardly anyone else does either anymore. On the filthy rich of the filthy rich, we all know that capitalism, if nothing else, is consistent. 
Well, it is. It consistently points out why it can't pay workers the higher wages it would just love to pay them if only it could. If only the taxes they avoid could be reduced. If only evil unions got out of the way. If only workers could be more productive. If only the government, which has no role in business, could come up with even more corporate welfare. That, that sort of thing. And in recent years, the smart ones have come up with an inspired means of extracting more from the public purse, the unsolicited tender. You approach the government with an idea for it to hand you lots of money and convince it that it's a great idea, social win-win, like Jamie Puker in New South Wales coming up with his Barangaroo Casino, which unfortunately, due to a few problems like, like crime and corruption, can't operate just yet. But you get the gist, and Jamie even managed to con, uh, sorry, convince them to let him build it on the only land that had been set aside for public open space, on something so ephemeral. And down here, the Westgate Tunnel, also waylaid by a little problem like toxic soil and where or on whom to dump it, Great private road corporate transfer your hard-earned urban, proposing the tunnel, getting the contract as an unsolicited tender, and then extracting from the government an extra 10 years of ripping off, or sorry, charging motorists to enjoy their daily traffic jam congestion on City Link. That panacea to all our transport problems we were promised would get us from Dandenong to the airport in 36 minutes, which you quite possibly can at uh, three in the morning. Anyway, the government has entered a collaboration with a company to put tracing technology on bridges which can determine their state, their condition, their safety, for instance. And a number of companies who didn't get the deal are complaining loud and long that the government had an obligation to put the job out to open tender. The loud and long being led by, you guessed it, transfer your hard-earned urban, the beneficiary of its own unsolicited tender. Just another example of consistency, and of course it is in many ways consistent. Okay, okay, hypocritical, but consistent. A, a bag of money is all that matters, unsolicited complaints. No complaints from the Perridge brothers, though. They're the beneficiaries of that deal where the government paid them 30 mil for land valued at 3 mil and leased back to the Perridge brothers for a valuation of less than 1 mil, the land reserved for a future second Sydney airport. Well, we're pleased to hear a government review has found there was no evidence of criminality and indeed suggests it wasn't a bad deal, leaving us to ponder just what they might consider is a bad deal. We're sure the Perish Brothers regarded as a very, very, very good deal. Now, I know we thought former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor, wasn't the perfect Big Supremo, but we have to spare a thought for him. Our hearts have to go out to him as we can but imagine the turmoil he's going through this week. There's Belarusian Big Supremo Alexander Lukashenko giving the world the two-finger salute and hijacking a flight so he could lock up a journalist who reckons the thousands on the streets since they had an election last year who reckon it was rigged and the opposition won. For some reason, questioning Lukashenko's assertion that he won almost 90% of the vote, how the people love me, 
And in Samoa, the opposition which won the election, the fast party, wasn't fast enough to get to Parliament before the long-term incumbent who lost the election slammed the door and declared he was still Big Supremo, suggesting one way of resolving the impasse for which he is only roughly 100% responsible could be solved by having another election. And then another, and then another, until I win, he indicated his support for the democratic process. Imagine how Donald must feel. Two prime examples of big supremos who did not win an election but simply refused to concede, knowing full well that one of the drawbacks with democracy is that sometimes the people simply get it wrong. And don't forget, Donald knows he won. I've no idea where these pieces are. Best no idea ever, ever. But I should have sought their advice. Best advice ever, ever. Poor Donald, what frustrating heartbreak when others show him how it can be done. And sadly, talk about kicking a man when he's down, more trouble looming for Donald as both the New York Attorney General's office and the Manhattan DA conduct a criminal investigation into a few of his affairs, like inflating and or minimising the value of assets to obtain favourable loan terms and tax benefits and investigating hush money payments to women on Donald's behalf. As Donald quite predictably, or no, no, that's not quite right, quite sensibly said, it's a democratic witch hunt. Biggest witch hunt ever, ever. Salem bleed. By the by, Donald must have the slowest auditor ever, ever. Guinness Book of Records slow, because it's now about six years since he promised to produce his tax figures. If I were him, I'd sack him. The God That's Money You've Got a Laugh Award to an anonymous Channel 9 interviewer as Senator Jackie Lumpert admitted she had abused airline staff when refused admittance to some lounge or other, getting herself banned from the airline, leading her to apologise. I blew my fuse, she said. Now, I heard this on a radio news service, but at, at, at blew my fuse, the Channel 9 person fell about laughing. It was the funniest thing, a senator abusing workers just doing their job. So if this COVID relapse kills a few workers, for instance, he should be in hysterics. The God, that's funny, you've got a laugh award is on its way, and I'm sure Channel 9 will know which of its in-depth reporters to give it to, or it might even have been one of those morning presenters who delve deep into world affairs. Apparently, in her blowing her top rant, it's alleged Jackie Lumpen also hurled homophobic slurs at the airline which used to be our airline Supremo Allen Joystick, which probably had the Channel 9 presenter just pissing himself laughing. Now, we can think of many, many, many reasons why we should criticise Alan Joystick, but his sexuality is irrelevant, but not to X-train killer Jackie. A couple of prominent sports people, a basketballer and a footballer, have been signed up as ambassadors to promote four and twenty thousand calories salt and fat pies, and by word we can be sure a diet of the product they're being paid to promote should do their form the world of good. Finally, as we endure being plunged into the 165th day of lockdown, we started with the whopping sin. Now, Friday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, P1, lockdowns, one billion hit to business, lead story. No matter of the hit and potential hit to people's health, only to the health that really matters. Good afternoon. Likewise to Kevin Healy. 
Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of Community Powered Radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, Community Powered Radio. Community Radio giving the voice to community since 1976. Today we return to Burma, where four months ago the democratically elected members of the country's ruling party, the National League for Democracy, the NLD, were deposed by the military. It proclaimed a one-year-long state of emergency and declared power had been transferred to the Commander-in-Chief of the Defence Forces. I'm speaking once again with Debbie Stothard, the Secretary-General of the International Federation for Human Rights and Coordinator of the Alternative ASEAN Network on Burma. And she's speaking from her home in Thailand. Debbie, first, the elected members of the government following the election late last year. What's known about their situation? Some of the elected MPs are still in detention. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi and and President Whitman have been subjected to increasing charges in judicial harassment. Uh, I think they've been also been charged with treason, which is a capital offense. The members of parliament that form the committee representing the Pidang Fulito, uh, the CRPH, um, which is actually the committee representing the national parliament, and they represent 76% of the elected MPs, have also been charged with treason and members of the public who aid them or, or contact them can be jailed for up to five years. That hasn't stopped the CRPH. What has indeed happened with members of the CRPH is that in mid-April, they established a yet national unity government with ethnic organizations, including who had ethnic armed organizations. So now we actually have a national unity government of elected MPs formed with ethnic groups that had been traditionally been excluded from formal political processes. And we have interesting cabinet. Out of the 26 people, we have 50 members of cabinet coming from other ethnic groups. We have eight women in the cabinet, and we have an out gay man who is the Minister for Human Rights. So I think it's the first time in Burma's history that we've had such a diverse and inclusive cabinet, and I think it's the first time we've actually had a Ministry for Human Rights. Can you explain why the junta is allowing this to happen? Oh, the junta is trying its best to kill off the National Unity Government has been launching multiple airstrikes against current National Union-controlled territory on the, the Burmese-Thai border area because they believe that a large number of the National Unity Government MPs are actually located there. So we've actually seen an escalation of hostilities 
in the three months of February, March, and April, there were 1,594 military attacks that either targeted civilians or directly caused harm to them. Now, if you look at 1,594 within three months, you have to compare it with the national annual figure for the whole of 2020. There were 1,024 attacks across the whole country. So it's seen within the three-month total is 150% of the number of attacks that happened in the whole of 2020 in the whole of the country. We've seen small towns being bombarded with artillery and rocket-propelled grenades as the military sought to make a lesson, turn these a small resistance sounds into a national lesson to intimidate activists and the national unity government. So the town of Mindat, a small mountain town in Chin State and, uh, on the west of the country, was bombarded by airstrikes and artillery and rocket propelled grenades for two and a half weeks before the military could gain control of this tiny little town. And now we're actually seeing in the east of the country, in Kareni or Kayas State, similar actions being taken by the military. Um, this week, we saw part of those hostilities include airstrikes and bombing of a church in which local people were sheltering. We are seeing war crimes taking place throughout the country as the military tries to gain political, economic, and territorial control. When you talk about these states in both the west and the east of Myanmar who want independence from that country, does this go back to the colonisation that these states were all bundled together under the British rule? I think we have to be very clear that many of these communities are seeking autonomy, not independence. And when we talk about that, we're talking about a genuine federal system such as that enjoyed in Australia, where there's clear lines between uh, local government, state government, and Commonwealth. And we are not seeing that general federal union, and that's very much a demand of the entire movement, that local people have the right to live without undue interference from the military. Now, what we've seen is that the military has attacked these mainly Christian ethnic minority areas with such harsh violence in order to scare the rest of the country and the rest of the movement into submission. Even as this is happening, they're still committing war crimes against people in the main urban cities like Mandalay and Yangon. Parts of Mandalay have deteriorated into a war zone where people are being shot dead, where people are being dragged away and tortured. A week ago, more than just over a week ago, one of our friends was injured in a grenade attack. And as medics were amputating his leg, the military junta actually came and dragged him and the doctors away into custody. We received word earlier this week that he died in custody. So we, we're actually seeing things like atrocities like this happen in Mandalay. And in the meantime, we've also seen 26 civilians sentenced to death uh, by court-martial. 
Under international law, court martials are reserved mainly for members of the security forces. The moment you drag a civilian before a court martial is basically, it means that you're treating them as a prisoner of war. And this is what the military is doing. It is treating the civilians of Burma as prisoners of war. What about the Muslim population? Are there any left or have they all fled? The Muslim population has continued to resist and I think one of the important things to note is that this movement has been deliberately and intentionally inclusive. So we've seen public apologies by people in the movement for atrocities against the Rohingya. We've seen basically an interfaith organization of resistance, that people are working across faith and ethnic identities to resist the military. But we've also noted that a Muslim NLD member was killed in custody and his body dumped in front of his home. Um, we've seen um, a young Muslim child killed as she sat in her father's lap. She was shot dead by, an soldier who, by soldiers who entered their home in search of uh, dissidents. So we've seen the Muslim neighborhoods of Tamway and Yangon being subjected to particular brutality by the military. So it's very clear that the military continues its discriminatory agenda that as they, fight, as they crush, try to crush dissent uh, and impose violence on all communities, regardless of their religion, we saw that particular brutality seems to be targeted, reserved for Muslims and Christians in terms of religious minorities, but also non-Burman ethnic communities and poorer neighborhoods. So we are seeing discriminatory violence, particular brutality reserved for people who are not Buddhist. So if you're Muslim or Christian, you're likely to be targeted with less violence. If you come from a, a different, um, you come from a non-Burman ethnic community, you will be targeted with violence, with greater violence. And if you are living in a poor neighborhood, then you are also incredibly vulnerable to an escalation of violence by the illegal hunter. How many of the killed, injured, and arrested are journalists? We have seen independent media targeted and a lot of independent media have either been raided or shut down, outlawed. We've actually seen several hundred websites blocked and we've also seen over 80 uh, journalists arrested and some of them charged and convicted in court. Others have been detained without trial and uh, and detained for interrogation at notorious interrogation centers. Independent, especially independent media, has been feeling the brunt of this. It's a huge toll. More than 80 journalists arrested within the space of three months. And there's more to come. You're in Bangkok, Thailand. How do you keep track of what's happening? 
I think we need to understand that there are incredibly courageous activists, citizen journalists, and professional journalists keen to get photos, video, and testimonies out. And so every time they are able to access the internet, they are sending out their a treasure trove of data and information. There are also, you know, the military for several months cut out uh, data services for mobile phones and now the, and shut down the internet between 1 a.m. and 9 a.m. every day. And now gradually some of those services are coming back. But, you know, shutting down the internet didn't seem to help the military junta because people were still determined to get information out. And we owe all these brave people, some of whom have been arrested simply for having a mobile phone with a camera, incredibly courageous and incredibly dedicated to getting the information out. Is it known how many people have been arrested and just where they are? Do they have any contact at all with their families? One of the most horrific parts of this is that the moment you are arrested, you are not likely access to a lawyer or information. People are still not even taken to court to be charged. In some cases, you are lucky to be taken to court to be charged because if someone can actually see you, they actually can have proof of life. But um, for some people, we had very horrific situations where in Mandalay, very popular poet and his wife were arrested and the next day they returned his body, you know, within 24 hours that killed him. But they also sent back his body without its internal organs. So very gruesome types of situations are happening. But despite that, the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners of Burma which was established and run by former political prisoners and their families, have been diligently keeping track of human rights documentation. So I can say as of the 27th of May, which is yesterday, at least 5,446 people were arrested. Uh, 4,331 were still in detention. Uh, another 1,881 warrants are out for arrest, and many of these people are being subjected to a manhunt. So we actually have people in hiding, and at least 831 people have been killed since the coup took place on the 1st of February. And I'd imagine it's very hard to hide, because if the, the military or the junta whatever comes to a village, if the people don't give up the information they want, then they're targeted as well? It's not just hiding in villages. It's also people hiding in townships and in cities and towns and urban areas. That um, the military, the illegal military junta tried to enforce an old colonial law that requires people to report where they are staying. So the head of every household is required to provide records of who's staying in that household. Uh, some of the activists who are moving from house to house started to be uh, frozen out because local guest houses and neighborhoods were saying, look, we can't hide you because we would go to jail 
if we don't report you. So um, a lot of people have then tried to go into uh, areas controlled by dissident organizations such as the Korean National Union and the Kachin Independent Organization. In uh, rural areas, it's easier to hide the military looking for weapons, especially homemade weapons that have become extremely popular as people see that nonviolent protest simply means that they're shot without any, any chance of defending themselves. So there's been a rise in homemade weapons. So when people know the military is coming to that area, they hide their homemade weapons in the jungle. But uh, in the town of Mindat, for example, in Chin State on the rest of the country, as I told you, local residents were able to hold off, defend their town against the military, which included, you know, they were subjected to artillery bombardment, airstrikes, and rocket propelled grenades, but they were still able to defend their town for two and a half weeks. We can already see that the local population is not only determined to get the information out, but they are determined to defend their neighborhood against a brutal, illegal military hunter. Well, as you said, that the information is out about what is happening. Then there is the question, which overseas governments are supporting the military? Australia is not supporting the military junta, but it's not objecting to the military junta either. It's quite outrageous and scandalous that Australia that claims, that position itself as a bastion of democracy and human rights in the Asia-Pacific is being incredibly wimpy against the military junta. They have not been, we, we still see Sean Tunnell in detention. We still see the fact that Australia is failing to do take both diplomatic and economic measures against the junta, and basically, in in it's just telling the junta it's a pushover. Australia should be doing something more than what it's doing already. The trouble is, Australia is doing it in other countries too. You can think of Indonesia and the Philippines, where they're actually supporting the the regimes there as well. The reality is that Australia needs to sanction military-controlled companies such as the MEC, the, the Myanmar Economic Corporation, the Myanmar Economic Holdings, Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise, because Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise, through its partnerships with Woodside, Chevron, and Total, the oil companies, is actually the biggest, one of the biggest source of revenue for the junta at this point. Australia needs to actually have some principles, and it's, it's, it's regrettable that Australia is simply saying, oh, we can't do sanctions because ASEAN and Korea and Japan won't. And it's like, oh, so Australia is now saying it's tailing behind. Instead of setting the standard, it's actually tailing behind. They are waiting for states that have incredibly poor records in terms of human rights and democracy to be better than them before they can actually move. That's ridiculous. What is known about the state of the economy? The military's violence has actually wrecked the economy. The banking system is almost collapsing. We've actually seen 2,000 out of 44 
2,000 branches of 44 banks in the country uh, shut down. There, there's a huge liquidity crisis, so people are unable to withdraw their money from the banks. Because of the military attacks and murders of uh, labor activists, basically the docks are not are barely operating because most of the workers in the manufacturing base and in the in transport and uh, in import and export have fled and have returned to their hometowns and gone into hiding. So even local people in Yangon who set up soup kitchens and handed out free food were arrested for doing so. The military is relying on natural resource uh, extraction as their main source of income because the formal economy has been brought to its knees by military violence. How serious is the spread of COVID? You know something, towards the end of last year, there was a big burst of infections from a few hundred to over 100,000 COVID infections. But since then, since the coup happened, nobody's talking about COVID because your ability to survive the virus is trumped by your ability to survive bullets. Well, what is the role for the international community if um, they're ignoring international law? You've got countries like Australia doing nothing. But the military junta is gambling on the fact that states like Australia will not sanction them, and so they will still have an income, uh, a revenue stream through natural resource extractions, through oil and natural gas revenues. So they don't have to worry too much about the state of the domestic economy because they will still have the means to pay their soldiers and buy more weapons and ammunition to use against local people in order to fully gain control of the country. They are counting on the fact that countries like Australia will zither and sit on their hands. But if we are actually able to secure economic sanctions and a global arms embargo on the military, some of the military leaders are going to have to start wondering that perhaps this coup has been too expensive of a venture and perhaps they need to start working towards a negotiated settlement before the situation merits a worse reaction from the international community. But states like Australia have to decide, are they on the side of inaction so that they can give the military the means and the time to commit more atrocities and subject the country to decades more of military rule, or are they actually going to take a principled stand and impose sanctions so that, that this creates the leverage necessary to get the military to the negotiating table? Finally, Debbie, does it rely also on grassroots groups around the world to put that pressure on those extractive companies who are operating with the military? We, we are seeing a huge movement, a huge global movement, including with, with activists and organizations in Australia, supporting sanctions, calling for sanctions against the military regime. But these companies are not likely to act if their governments don't have the courage to impose legal measures. So if Australia were to impose sanctions, if the Australian government were to impose sanctions, then it's no longer a question of yes or no or maybe on the part of, the, of Australian companies. Australian companies will just have to follow the sanctions. 
That's basically why it is essential that legislators and the government of Australia get to act together and develop some backbone when it comes to Burma. Are you speaking with members of parliament in Australia? I know you have many connections here. The thing is this. There is a movement in Australia and the activists in Australia are doing the necessary work. They are talking to legislators. They are talking to other stakeholders. They are pressuring companies, but they also are pressuring the government. The question is this. Is the government of Australia just as authoritarian as the military junta of Burma? Will it listen to activists, to people standing on the side of human rights and democracy and peace? Or will it ignore the voice of the population and follow the vested interests, bow to the vested interests of big corporations? Well, that doesn't bode well for anyone, does it? No. I think, um, you know, whether it is peace in Burma, whether it's climate change protecting and climate justice, whether it's justice for indigenous peoples of Australia, it's time. It's time we actually had policies that work, that put people at the centre. Thank you so much, Debbie. Solidarity to everyone there. We are all fighting similar struggles and we are all supporting each other. I've been speaking with Debbie Stothars, the Secretary-General of the International Federation for Human Rights and Coordinator of the Alternative ASEAN Network on Burma. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. A Pacific nation we don't hear very much about is Samoa. But it's certainly been in the news in the last couple of weeks. I rang Nick McClellan to find out more and asked him first about the fact that there are two Samoas, one Samoa and one American Samoa. What the history of this is and how far back in history? That goes back to the end of the 19th century, the division between uh, the independent nation-state of Samoa and the U.S. territory called American Samoa, which is right next door, and indeed united by family connections, by language, uh, by history. But uh, Samoa, like many Pacific Island countries, is still living with the legacies of colonialism, and the division between the two uh, groups of islands ties back to the the classic age of European colonialism in the Pacific um, in the late 1890s. At the time, there were disputes between Britain, Germany and the United States over colonial control in the area. To cut a long story short, uh, those three countries signed a tripartite agreement in 1899 to divide the territory. Germany got uh, what is today uh, Samoa and the United States, uh, not surprisingly, got American Samoa um, and has continued to rule it. I mean, that period was important in the Pacific. It came after the Spanish-American War, where the United States was pushing out into the Pacific as an imperial power. Um, It colonised Hawaii um, between 1893 and 1898, 
um, including a coup d'etat against the uh, Queen Liliuokalani in Hawaii. It also uh, took what had been a Spanish possession of Guam, uh, the island uh, in the Western Pacific. And today, Guam, um, like Hawaii, is a central part of the U.S. military network, uh, military bases network across uh, the Northern Pacific. So territories that were seized, like American Samoa, Hawaii and Guam, have been since uh, those colonial days in the late 1890s and has been maintained as such. Samoa, however, at the time of the First World War, was taken over by New Zealand, and Germany had only been there for 14 years uh, when the New Zealanders took over as um, uh, the British Empire took on Germany in the First World War. And, of course, the peoples had no say in any of this. Well, people did have a say. They began to organise against colonial rule, and one of the striking features at the time was that in, there are two main islands in uh, Samoa, um, and the island of Savai saw a, a popular uprising and resistance against German rule and the, the German uh, governor at the time, uh, and what was the, the early roots of what was called the Mao movement uh, began in the early 1900s, where people uh, said that they didn't want to be ruled by Germany or indeed any foreign colonial power. And uh, so the Mao, Mao is a term in Samoan that sort of means resolved, uh, firm, you know, it, it suggests a, a level of strength and power. It became a, um, a social movement drawing on uh, the tradition of customary leaders who are known as matai or chiefs in Samoa. Eventually, expanded to develop through the 1910s and 1920s into a much broader movement. And they had a, a slogan, the Mao movement, called uh, for Samoa Mo Samoa, which means Samoa for the Samoans. It was uh, very much a call that the indigenous people of the islands should determine the future. Uh, and this was certainly before any developing country uh, gained its independence. And where did that movement go? Well, Mao gained a lot of support and, uh, and mobilised you know, across the country. As I say, from early uh, links in, in Savai'i, it spread throughout uh, um, the other islands of Samoa. Um, it gained a lot of support uh, from uh, ordinary people, as well as the Matai, as well as the chiefs. People wore a sort of uniform, which was a, a navy blue um, lava lava, which is a, a, a rep... Um, a, uh, with a white stripe, and <laughs> that outfit was banned by the colonial administration. And the Mao movement really culminated with a, a, an event known as Black Saturday in 1929. Just after Christmas 1929, there was a, a major protest march in uh, Apia, the capital of, of Samoa, and New Zealand police fired on the procession who were attempting to, to stop uh, the arrest of one of their, their people and killed a number of uh, Samoans, including the Mao leader at the time. It was a huge uh, issue, and a guy called Mike Field has written a wonderful book about this. Uh, New Zealand journalist Michael Field has written a history of the Mao movement and, and the culmination of this. It was a setback, obviously, for the movement at the time, that New Zealand, who don't have a reputation for being a bloody colonial power, but they uh, stymied that, and it wasn't until after the Second World War, that the movement for independence finally culminated. And indeed, what was then called Western Samoa is the first 
independent island nation in the Pacific Islands in 1962. Um, you know, the wave of decolonisation that had affected Africa and Asia, other parts of the developing world uh, back in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s came later to the Pacific. So Western Samoa um, moved to sovereign independence in 1962 and New Zealand pulled out, although New Zealand has maintained a strong political, cultural, economic ties with uh, Samoa, and indeed Samoans have the right to migration to New Zealand. So there's a big uh, Samoan population in New Zealand, just as there is in Australia, people who've migrated uh, looking for work, education, employment, enjoyment. Well, let's look to the present, Nick. 60 years later, what we have is a, a political impasse or a constitutional crisis. Why? One of the features of Samoa has been that there's been a uh, one party in power for many, many decades. Uh, the Human Rights Protection Party was formed in 1979, so some years ago, and uh, has been uh, the key party in Samoan politics since the early 80s. And indeed, it's been uh, it won power in 1982, and apart from a couple of brief periods of uh, internal ructions, it's been um, governing since that time, so since the, the 1980s. Prime Minister Tui Lapa, uh, who's been a, a leading figure in the party and indeed in regional politics, uh, has led the Human Rights Protection Party since 1998. It's been, uh, you know, really the the uh, dominant party for decades and decades. But, as you say, there's been a political crisis. There were general elections held in April, and the um, election results led to a very close outcome for the 51-seat Fono National Parliament. Uh, there were 25 seats for the Human Rights Protection Party, 25 for uh, a new party, or at least a party with a new leader, uh, the FAST Party, and uh, one independent in the middle. That uh, close result was a surprise, certainly for Prime Minister Tuilapa and for many commentators who had suggested that the new party, the fast party, would do well, but not many people were, were aware that it was going to do, uh, win the balance of power. One of the key reasons was that a leading figure from Human Rights Protection Party, indeed the Deputy Prime Minister in previous governments, a woman named Fiame Naomi Matafa had left um, in 2020. Fiame is a, a major figure in both Samoan and regional politics. She's a very charismatic woman as a politician. She'd been a politician for a long time. Um, she was the first female minister in any government in Samoa, and uh, there's a lot of firsts, uh, first minister, uh, first deputy prime minister as a woman and so on. And so she's led a, a, a key role in the party over many years in government, serving as minister in a number of roles, particularly around education, where she's been a, a major force. Um, she fell out, however, with uh, her, her former boss over the last few years and left the party in September, I think, 2020, was wooed by the small opposition party FAST, became its leader earlier this year, and within a, a very short time mobilised uh, enormous support, both within... Uh, uh, the country, and also amongst the large Samoan diaspora. Uh, many people who've migrated to Australia, to New Zealand, to the United States and other locations, and have really welcomed 
the, the sense that it's time for a change. What we've seen since then, however, this close 25-25 decision has meant that um, there's been legal and political over the last uh, weeks since the elections in April where the uh, outgoing government is refusing to leave office, um, is saying that they are acting as caretakers and are calling for new elections. The outgoing party tried to uh, uh, boost their numbers by one by saying, well, we need more women in parliament and appointing a woman to uh, a position that was overruled by the courts. The new prime minister, Fiamme Naomi Mata'afa, went to Parliament House to be sworn in on the last day that that was possible. Uh, the doors were locked by the, um, the Speaker of Parliament, who is an ally of the outgoing Prime Minister. So it's quite complex. It goes on. Um, it's been done with a, a relative calm and lack of violence that uh, shows the importance of Samoan culture and the need for dialogue in resolving these things. But tempers are pretty drawn, and I think in coming days you're going to see ongoing tensions as to, to recognise who will be the, uh, the rightful uh, government. This can either be resolved through the courts or there may be a push to go back to more elections. And the uh, Human Rights Protection Party would certainly like that. Indeed, they won more votes, not more seats, but more votes in the April elections. Would guess, feel confident that if they went back to elections, they may uh, be able to mobilise a lot of support, having the advantage of the incumbency of government. Is there a timeline when this has to be resolved? Uncertain. Uh, Donald Trump still thinks he won the US election, so there's often no timeline for this. Uh, what's interesting is that the um, fellow members of the Pacific Islands Forum, the main regional political organisation, have been dancing around this issue. Um, Australia, New Zealand and a few other Pacific states have encouraged both sides to work through uh, dialogue and legal democratic processes to resolve the crisis. Um, only two Pacific countries, Palau and the Federated States of Micronesia, have recognised uh, Fiamme as the new Prime Minister and the FAST party as the new dominant government. And ironically, both Palau and FSM are amongst the five countries that formally withdrew from the forum. These are two Micronesian countries in the northern Pacific. And so I think part of this is the Micronesians sending a message to Tuilaepa and the old guard of the Polynesian leaders group that um, the lack of support that were given to the Micronesians in electing the new Secretary General of the forum has come home to roost. The current uh, Secretary-General, Dame Meg Taylor, has just finished her term of office, and the incoming Secretary-General of the regional organisation, uh, Henry Puna, is the former Prime Minister of Cook Islands, another member of the Polynesian Leaders Group, the sub-regional grouping. So I think the Micronesians are making a bit of a point to the, the Polynesians that uh, you know they should be playing by the rules uh, in electing people. There's a a matter being played out in Samoa, and it's ultimately up to the people of Samoa to decide uh, what they want, as well as plenty of lawyers. Uh, but uh, it has uh, significant regional implications and, indeed, international implications. You're talking about its implications for the Pacific nations. What about a nation like New Zealand, Australia, the US, who have also got these interests in the Pacific to try and counter China? That's one interesting 
issue and indeed often uh, local domestic political issues, and that's certainly what this is, is framed through the current US-China tensions and the role that Australia and New Zealand as ANZUS allies play in this. There's been some media reporting in The Age, for example, that Fiamme, um, uh, as incoming Prime Minister, would change or indeed cancel an agreement with China uh, to build a significant new wharf in Samoa. A lot of the security hardheads uh, are anxious that China might use uh, port infrastructure to advance military rather than just economic and trade interests in the, the some distant future. It's seen that uh, Tuilapa is uh, being portrayed as you know, aligned with China. I think it's a lot more complex than that, as is often the case uh, in reporting about the Pacific. But these geopolitical tensions between the United States and China and the way that um, mid-level powers like Australia, New Zealand, France and others are lining up to contain Chinese influence in the region is certainly uh, overlaying the sort of debate that is really driven by domestic issues, the priorities and concerns of uh, people in Samoa. So, you know, this comes at a pretty important time for Scott Morrison. One of the things that unites Pacific governments, uh, despite these sort of differences, is concern over Australia's climate policies. He's just about to go off to the G7 meeting. Four countries have been invited to the G7, the Group of Seven meeting, uh, which is being held in the United Kingdom uh, uh, in June. Uh, it's notable that the four countries who've been invited are not only Asia-Pacific and African countries, uh, South Africa, Australia, South Korea and Indonesia, but also four countries that haven't committed to net zero for 2050. So I think Scott Morrison is going to get a beating around the ears around the climate issue. Uh, and so Australia is in a difficult situation where it doesn't want to antagonise a key forum member like Samoa and is really uh, holding back from uh, supporting one side or other encouraging the people of Samoa and indeed legal processes in Samoa to resolve this political dispute. Um, you know, we've had these sort of disputes in our own country. It's not uh, completely uncommon. And as I say, one of the notable things about it is the way in which Samoan values are playing out in terms of promoting dialogue amongst ordinary people about how to resolve this. But there's a sharp political context and it comes at a time of significant change in the region. It's just one of many elements... Um, as we say, in the, the dynamic region that um, is, is part of our neighbourhood. Thank you. Thanks. And that, of course, was journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. Global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Deep Don't be scared. Yeah. It's coal. It's cold. It's cold. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Next on Tuesday Home Time, the second and final part of the interview 
on the recent history of Chile with student and activist Sasha Gillies Lakakis. In the last part, the Pinochet regime had been forced to renationalise the banking system to save their neoliberal experiment. And of course, even after the economy stabilised in 1984, stabilised for who is the big question. I mean, as in any neoliberal uh, economy, you had a in particularly in Chile's case, an incredibly small group of oligarchs who were, you know, growing fabulously wealthy, uh, while most Chileans lived in, in squalor, in misery. And, and you can see the results of that today. Um, Chile is regularly listed in the top 10 most unequal countries in the world. That's the economic legacy of Pinochet. One comment I read was that they actually ripped open Chile's social fabric Absolutely. And, you know, for a supposedly Christian military regime, because Pinochet did, did broach himself as a, as a Christian man, uh, I mean, the effect that his regime had on the family, but even just the very basic family unit, um, which is supposedly sacred to, to religious and, and conservative groups, was just, just shocking. I mean, you know, families were torn apart. There, there are recorded instances of, of families who, who had, you know, Pinochet supporters and then Allende supporters, and the Pinochet supporters would wrap their own relatives in to the military police. Or if, if we take an even more specific example, um, you, of course, have the case of, you know, the, the, the mass rape that took place of women, particularly of left-leaning women, um, across the country. It was, it was really, really horrific. And then if we go to, to the case of Indigenous Chileans during this period, particularly the Mapuche, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later as well, but um, Pinochet signed a decree that allowed Chile, uh, the Chilean government to break up indigenous communes, indigenous um, land communes, and essentially broke families up, broke families apart, and individualised them into, into these little neoliberal units. And I, I also heard a, a comment that sort of reflected the, the sentiment of what you said. It was actually from a professor of mine who's been to Santiago a number of times, the capital in Chile, and he said, I've never seen a city or a country where everyone looks sad all the time. That's the impression he got from Chile today or in the, in the last few years, because you're absolutely right. I mean, it was just, um, it, was, it was an unnatural reaction that took place, the, the coup, it was engineered in America, and you can see the result of that, you know. It, it shouldn't have happened in Chile, and, and the impact has been really jarring and really traumatic. I suppose it's all the social indicators, it's health, education, housing, access to quality food. Yep, if you look at Chile now, and of course these reforms began with Pinochet, I mean, as I said, everything, I mean, everything has been like privatised. I mean, if we think we've got it bad in Australia with privatisation, in Chile it's another level. You, you have this really sharp divide between private schools and public schools, and the, the, the class divide, of course, between those sorts of divisions is, is really, really stark as well. And, you know, there have even been reports of, um, of private school kids attacking poorer kids in these sorts of, like, skirmishes um, in, in the past, which is really pretty sad, I think. And the healthcare system, of course, was also almost totally privatised. Um, and we saw the result of, um, of that in COVID when um, Chile's healthcare system virtually collapsed. They, they, they ended up almost running out of hospital beds. Their lord is supposedly the most developed country in Latin America, which is something that rings very hollow when you see the way that most Chileans live or the services that most Chileans get access to. And of course, um, 
Yeah, as you said, with food, um, it's an incredibly expensive country compared to the rest of Latin America. Compared to maybe a European country, it's not as expensive. But um, you would definitely, even an Australian going there, would definitely, um, you know, feel the effect on their on their hip pocket by going there. Now, food is, is really quite expensive. As a part of free trade deals, they import most of their food. That naturally makes it more expensive. It's, it's just a system that is totally anti-people. It's just, it's always been geared against, against the people, even at, at these micro levels, at the local level. Well, it's 30 years since the Pinochet era ended. What sort of governments and societies have we seen in that 30 years? So d- just to, to talk about the, trans- the actual transition itself from military rule to quote-unquote democracy, in 1980, the Pinochet era constitution is put into effect. Um, it enshrines neoliberalism as the central economic doctrine of Chile. It also protects the military from prosecution, similar to what happened in Brazil. And it stipulated that in 1988, the military rule, the, the idea of military rule, would be taken to a, a national plebiscite to see if Chileans would, would accept another eight years of Pinochet ruling. Now, it's interesting because this was allowed to take place in 1988, eight years after the constitution came into effect, and and you had 55% of of Chile vote no, that they wanted the military regime to end. And Pinochet did it. In this immediate period of the transition, remarkably, there was very little violence um, for a regime that had been so brutal beforehand. And it's important to know why. I mean, obviously, they had implemented the 1980 1980 constitution knowing that the, the military would at some point give up power. And they had a bit of the benefit of uh, hindsight because they'd see what was happening in Argentina uh, and in Brazil and in the other military regimes uh, in Latin America that were either giving up power in the way that Pinochet did or that were forced to relinquish power. And, and of course, it was a very hollow victory in the end. Um, The military is still a very potent force. And Pinochet actually ended up remaining as the head of the armed forces for about two to three years after the the so-called transition to democracy. And then in 1989, you had the first election, and Patricio Alwin of the, the Christian Democrat Party, um, which broaches itself as a centre-left party, wins the election. And what you have for the next 20 years, up until 2010, is what is called in Chile the Concertación era, which is basically the Concertación um, is basically an umbrella term for the centre-left parties in Chile. And it is a series of centre-left parties, chiefly the Christian Democrats and the quote-unquote socialist party, because they weren't a genuine socialist party, and they essentially exchanged power for the next 20 years. And it was hoped, you know, that, that they would join the big tide of the, the Latin American left in the early 2000s, the pink tide, but they didn't really. Um, I mean, we had Michelle Bachelet, who's now works for the UN. She became the head of the country um, under the Socialist Party. But she, she was never as radical as the, other, as the other countries in Latin America. She signed some very exploitative for Chile um, trade deals with the US and the European Union. She's been very antagonistic towards Venezuela and a lot of the other revolutionary movements in Latin America. And these groups, of course, deepened neoliberalism. They deepened the neoliberal reforms that Pinochet started, which was the greatest tragedy because it was just business as usual. And, and Chileans, I think, knew that. But when the 2010 election came and none of the issues that really the Pinochet had caused had been resolved, people grew fed up with this centre-left um, concentration 
And in 2010, you have Sebastian Piñera, who is a public admirer of Pinochet uh, and who has connections to Pinochet-era politicians and businessmen. You have him beat the centre-left, and he wins. Now, of course, the turnout in these elections uh, is never really high. In Chile, there's a bit of an apathy around that, or up until recently, there, there was a bit of an apathy around voting because, much like the case of Australia, it doesn't matter really in Chile, centre-left or centre-right, very little changes. But Sebastian Piñera sort of put these neoliberal reforms into overdrive, you know, and he took Chile even further back towards a conservative right-wing trajectory, even more so than the, the sort of the, the centre-left um, groups. And then, of course, in 2019, we have the estallido social, or the social explosion. 2019, you have ostensibly this massive uprising that takes place across Chile, but particularly in Santiago. Supposedly, ostensibly, it's over an increase in the public transport and the metro um, ticket fare of about 30 US cents. But, of course, one of the main slogans of these protests was it's not about the 30 cents, it's about the last 30 years, exactly as the point of these protests. That it's not, it's not just some, some spontaneous reaction to this decision by Piñera, it's a reaction to the neoliberal system, very explicitly so. And you see that, you know, you have millions of people from across Chile, from across the social and class divides. I mean, of course, not the rich, but you have a, a lot of even middle class people, you have heaps of poor working class Chileans and from a, a range of groups. You have communists, you have indigenous movements, you have feminist movements, and, and you of course just have Chileans that have been that have been left behind by neoliberalism. And they, they were vandalizing and tearing down colonial era statues. Um, you can even see apparently walking through Santiago today all of the anti neoliberal slogans graffitied across the city. Uh, and across many other cities too. And in one, in, I mean, in one day alone in October, you had 1.2 million people just in Santiago protesting against the Piñera government and the neoliberal system. I mean, it was, it still is a really exciting development in Chile. Um, now, of course, Piñera naturally responded with significant police brutality. They say that about 2,000 people were injured, around 30 died um, as a result of police brutality. And I think around it was 3,000 or 3,500 were arrested. And, you know, there are very grisly cases of the police, for example, sexually assaulting some of the protesters, shooting out people's eyes with rubber bullets. That was a, that was a major scandal that, um, that embroiled Piñera. But, but the protests didn't stop. They didn't abate. They only increased. Um, the anger against Piñera only grew stronger. And by the end of 2019, Piñera agrees to hold a constitutional referendum, because uh, this, of course, was also one of the main demands of the protesters, to abolish the neoliberal Pinochet-era constitution. And he says, OK, we'll do that. We'll have um, a referendum on whether or not to, to go ahead with this constitutional referendum. An overwhelming, almost 80% of Chileans vote to abolish the Pinochet-era constitution. Almost 80%. That, that's, a, that's a massive repudiation of neoliberalism. And just, just last week, um, May 15th, May 16th, was the election itself to decide who is going to draft this new constitution. And the communists won. The far left and the communists won, which is, uh, I mean, it's unprecedented, particularly in the case of Chile. Um, when, when so many communists were killed and, and, and the movement was repressed for so many decades, but they won. And the centre and the centre right, Piñera's party, Piñera's coalition, uh, collapsed. Their support collapsed. Well, what possibilities are there for 
a new constitution? What could it contain? Yeah, well, I mean, this was one of the main tests because the centre-right was looking to get at least uh, one-third one third of the parliament, or of this constitutional parliament, because that would then allow them to block progressive inclusions in the constitution. Um, it would give them a veto power because they're the sitting government. But uh, they didn't. They got less than one third. Their, their supporters absolutely collapsed. The centre-left collapsed. And together, there's two coalitions, Aparuevo Dignidad, which has the Communist Party, and the Broad Left Front. Together, they control almost 50%, potentially even more than 50%, actually, of this new constitutional parliament that's going to draft the new governing charter of Chile. Now, I mean, I, I anticipate one of the main things is going to be, firstly, getting rid of the references to neoliberalism and the enshrinement of neoliberal economic policy as, you know, as a cornerstone of Chile, which, of course, is what Pinochet's constitution mandates. I suspect they may attempt to tackle the issue of um, the military, the power that the military still has and the impunity that a lot of the military members still enjoy. It's, it's a very small amount. Of, of the 30,000 recorded cases of disappearances, it's something like 3,000 have actually been investigated. It's, it's, it's a very small amount. So they may try to, to tackle that. And, and then, of course, you know, there's always the possibility that they're going to move towards some sort of socialist institution. I'm not sure whether everyone within the broad left front is in agreement with that, how to gauge the support for, for that sort of thing at the moment. But I think, I think we'll hear more about that in, in the coming months, particularly as Chile gets closer to the presidential election at the end of the year. How much time do they have for this constitutional change? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. There's not a, a limit to when the constitution itself has to be written. But there, there was a time, limit, a time limit on when Piñera had to call the referendum, basically. There's not as much pressure on the constitutional drafting body at this time. It was mostly the pressure was put on Piñera and, and his government to make sure that they actually held the plebiscite in the first place and then the election. And they have, under immense pressure from grassroots forces, they, they did end up doing it. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's a bit of time, I suspect, um, as well, the election, as I said, the elections at the end of the year will um, uh, will also dictate a bit, a bit more, you know, what the constitution will look like, and you know they'll get an idea of, I suppose, what what the Chileans are looking for um, in the new constitution. An important issue we haven't just talked about are the rights of the indigenous peoples, and there are a number of indigenous groups in Chile, aren't there? Yes, is the case in, in all Latin American countries. It's indigenous people that are some of the that, that have suffered the most. Not only, of course, during coloni uh, colonialism, but during neoliberal capitalism as well. And you're right, there's there's a diverse rate of indigenous peoples, particularly in southern Chile, and then up in the north as you go to Peru. The largest group is, and most people will be familiar with the Mapuche. They're the largest group. Their homeland is in Araucania, which is in the south of Chile. And they were renowned for being really fierce warriors. I mean, they still are. They're, it's a it's a proud tradition. And even though officially Chile has been a country since 1818, the scholars have now suggested, with with a lot of evidence, that really they Chile couldn't subjugate the Mapuche. Some say until the end of the 1800s, and some say even into the early 20th century, um, the Mapuche was still was still in control of, of areas of southern Chile. Their land rights have always been disrespected by the elite, by the Chilean oligarchy. Particularly in the south, in Araucania, there's significant timber interests. 
There's a lot of forest down there that timber companies are willing to cut up for exploitation. And, and there's also copper mines as well, or potential copper mines. And the Chilean constitution that Pinochet put into power, there's no safeguards for Indigenous rights. There's no safeguards for Indigenous um, land sovereignty. So it has been very easy for the corporations to just um, go to the government, get their permit, and just take whatever they want. Now, of course, that has obviously met with stiff resistance. There's been numerous documented instances of violence between, you know, Mapuche who are defending their, their land and, their, and the right to their land and these normally corporate security for these projects. Even as early as 1989, less than a year after the, um, the transition to democracy, you had five prominent Mapuche activists who attempted to reclaim their, their land in Peru, uh, in um, Puren, in the south of, south, of, south of the capital. They were murdered by the landowner. And, you know, this is, a, this is the thing that's, that happens all the time in Chile. There's, there's a lot of undocumented instances of, um, of these sorts of, this sort of violence against Indigenous people. And, and even moving beyond the land question, you know, things as simple as, for example, you know, vandalising the colonial statues, which is something that the Mapuches have done for, for several decades as a means of protest, or teaching, telling their children to speak the Mapuche language or whatever Indigenous language it may be in school. That often gets a very violent reaction, not necessarily to the extent of killing in that case, but, you know, you get very um, uncomfortable and hostile situations. They've been reported in the Chilean media. And, of course, in 2019, when we had the social explosion, it was a number of them, but chiefly the Mapuche were their, their main gripe. Of course, they called for an end to the austerity and the neoliberalism. Um, but their main gripe is, is they want to see like a recognition of Indigenous sovereignty in the new constitution and protection for Indigenous land. Because very little has changed since the colonial period in Chile, truth be told. In, in regard to Indigenous land seizures, it's, it's still very much a free-for-all. And of course, it's in, the remote, it's in remote parts of the country where people don't really see it, where people aren't exposed to it. Um, I guess similar to the case of the Amazon um, in Brazil. Do the Indigenous peoples have any input into the constitutional talks? Yes, the independent candidates were Indigenous. A number of the independent candidates that won the, in the election, the 15th, 16th of May election, are Indigenous. There's also a, a, a committee, I don't know how many members it has, of Indigenous people who are going to advise. I don't believe they have the same degree of power as, as the candidates who were elected. And, of course, there are a number of Indigenous people who belong to these organisations who, who are within the far-left coalitions as well. It is looking promising at, at this point. Again, it's difficult to gauge, you know, individual parliamentarian sort of opinions on these sorts of issues. Um, you know, I'm sure not everyone in these left-wing coalitions is in agreement. I'd like to think that most of them are in supporting the Mapuche and the other Indigenous communities in Chile. It was a victory for the Indigenous people as well, even though it was on a smaller scale than, than the left, perhaps. You know, that's the first time in a long time that Indigenous people have even been able to, um, even been able to make themselves, you know, known and, and actually get elected to a position of power in Chile, which is, which is significant in itself. Would you say that things are looking better for the people of Chile than it has for quite a while? I would say yes. Now, I'm going to, you know, touch wood. I don't want to jinx it. But I would say, yes, particularly with the case of Chile, and for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, this victory for the left in the constitutional convention elections is a really promising trend. If we look to the opinion polls for the Chilean presidential elections in November, I believe, this year, every single poll, the Communist Party candidate, Daniel Jadwe, is in front. He's leading in the polls. 
the, the lead depend, differs depending on which poll you're looking at. Some give a margin of just 3%, a difference of just 3% between him and the next candidate. Some give it up to uh, 10-15%. The communists are looking like they may actually take power, um, which would be really, I mean, for, for Chile, I, I would never have picked Chile as the country in Latin America to vote for, you know, for the Communist Party, but it seems like that's the way they're heading. Uh, the other reason that I'm hopeful, I mean, obviously you have a explosion in 2019 that has admittedly has dampened since coronavirus and, and Pindera implemented a lockdown, which has sort of caused a few complications. But people are still massing in the streets. People are still taking actions. People have not forgotten about this. Even the Chilean friends I have here, um, you know, they, they tell me this, you know, it might have stopped for now, but it's still very fresh in people's minds. You know, the US is very obviously losing a bit of its power in Latin America. You know, they couldn't even stop the Bolivians from, from overthrowing the coup regime. I, I don't think the Chileans will let another Pinochet-type coup take place. You know, I, I don't think it's going to slide this time. And, of course, the movement is a lot larger now, and it's a lot more sort of unified than I think it was in the 1970s when Pinochet took power. And the only, you know, the only other thing I can envision the US doing, which is similar to what they did in Ecuador, is to field a sort of pseudo-left candidate and to try and steal votes from the communists. But as we've seen, I mean, you've got the centre-right, and you've got the centre-left that no one trusts because they are basically the centre-right. So, so there's not even that sort of room to manoeuvre against the Communist Party. They can't accuse this Communist Party of corruption or anything like that because they've never been in power. It's looking, I would say, like a very promising prospect for Chile. And, of course, for Latin America, Chile went socialist or, you know, adopted this more radical, more progressive form of government. It would be really huge for the rest of Latin America. Slowly, bit by bit, we're seeing, you know, I mean, of course, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Bolivia, they're still around. Argentina and Mexico are uh, very progressive at this point. America's main ally, Colombia, is in crisis mode because of the protests. Um, Brazil is still, I, I mean, it's a tragedy, but, but also they're, um, you know, the right is, is gradually being, being discredited there, of course, because of Bolsonaro. So if Chile won, it would be a really massive um, victory for regional integration and, you know, socialism in Latin America. And that was the second part of the interview with student and activist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. I'm speaking once again with Barathan Vidhapathy. He's a Tamil Elam filmmaker and a member of the Tamil Refugee Council based in Melbourne, Australia. My first question to Barathan was, how far back can he trace Australia's support for the Sri Lankan regime to the detriment of the Tamil minority? You might be testing some of my knowledge. I guess as far back as I can remember, um, as I've established, it's at least in the in the Howard years, yeah, during their um, their immigration policy. But yeah, we're obviously looking back towards. Uh, uh, sorry, I currently don't know uh, further than that. But um, you know, obviously there's going to be definitely some um, you know trade and immigration uh, generally relations between the two countries. But yeah, it's only post kind of 2000 that um, I'm most knowledgeable about. Well, let's look at that Howard time. Why was he so opposed for Tamils to come to Australia? Was it just because they were Tamils? Was it just because they were refugees? What was it? Well, I think this is, uh, yeah, this might not be uh, the contention of a lot of other people, but I guess my personal opinion is uh, I guess during that time, you know, there was uh, the conflict, uh, there was the invasion of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, 
And I think that that was uh, a really good cover to uh, for a lot of countries to uh, amp up hysteria about terrorism. Uh, that was obviously applied uh, a lot to liberation struggles around the world, and particularly in Sri Lanka. And obviously, uh, refugees, asylum seekers, uh, especially in Australia, is a very uh, contentious topic. It obviously riles up uh, the most, uh, unfortunately, the most uh, racist views uh, in the country and a lot of hysteria um, with just general working class people. And uh, yeah, I think that just it was you know, in his political bottom line to keep uh, his base uh, voting for him, and and and, his, and that base was one that um, wanted to you know stem the tide of asylum seekers uh, in any way possible. Are you aware of? asylum seekers coming to Australia prior to the end of the civil war in 2009 or was it mainly after? My knowledge is uh, really just uh, in the closing years of that war and then uh, post that. And what was happening in those final years? Lots of uh, refugees were escaping, um, trying to escape the conflict because it seemed like um, a lot of people who were um, associated with the uh, de facto Tamil state, because it seemed like, uh, unfortunately, they were on the losing end with um, the Sri Lankan military being supported by um, many uh, Western countries. And so uh, I guess uh, particularly there's a case of um, a woman called uh, Ranjini, who you might know. She came in the closing years of the war. Uh, she was detained with her two sons. She was released. But then after spending a year in community, she was uh, taken back as she was uh, given a, a negative threat assessment. Yeah, basically wasn't told any um, specific information about why she was being detained again. She was part of the de facto state while she was living in Sri Lanka. But uh, yeah, was detained on basically minimal information by ASIO. She was pregnant at the time, ended up uh, having a, her third son uh, in detention and ended up spending three whole years uh, in detention and then ended in 2015. And she was basically, and I think to this day, she's basically not been given um, accurate information as to why she was detained. And that arbitrary um, selection or lack of clarity is something that the Australian government has consistently done uh, towards Tamil refugees. That military support that you said that the West was giving Sri Lanka at the end of the war, do you know what Australia's role was? Well, I know that Australia uh, has given uh, arms and military equipment, particularly the Navy, Navy ships. Uh, that's been more prevalent post the war. But around that period, there has been um, reports of, uh, yes, arms and uh, yeah, naval equipment being sent. And then, um, yeah, that's ramped up uh, post the war and um, even more ramping up about uh, attempting to stop uh, Tamil uh, asylum seekers uh, fleeing Sri Lanka. Is it known how many Tamil asylum seekers have been returned and what's happened to them if they did return? I don't have the exact numbers. I think there's, there's a lack of clarity on the government's part as well. They have a, uh, a policy called uh, take-backs or uh, turn-backs, where basically they can be uh, Tamil refugees particularly, but uh, among uh, other na- uh, nationalities that were fleeing, particularly from Indonesia trying to come to Australia were given an assessment at sea and then uh, based on if they um, adhere to uh, what ASIO determined to be uh, valid refugees or uh, given the um, correct information, uh, if they weren't, they were turned back. There's not, uh, unfortunately, accurate numbers to say the the detail uh, who was sent back or how many people were sent back and 
especially now in the in the last couple of years, there's obviously there's been very little information that the government has provided about these things. Like we know people still are fleeing, um, but obviously it's not catching the media's attention, and the government isn't necessarily being forthcoming about you know the continued uh, flow of asylum seekers because um, you know in in their eyes they've stopped the boats and um, they want to stop it at that. They don't want any more attention being focused on uh, if there are refugees continuing to to come. Has there been any ability to follow one of these people who have been returned to see how they have survived once they've gone back to Sri Lanka? Uh, I've read a few reports from um, people who were returned, one by ABC, uh, another by The Guardian, I think. And, uh, yeah, people who have been returned have been subject to harassment and, and torture torture because they may have been involved uh, with the de facto Tamil state or just because they're uh, considered that they're, you know, they're labelled as uh, people that were fleeing. And so, um, yeah, the the government in Sri Lanka arbitrarily will arrest people under the Prevention of Terrorism Act. They can detain people for up to uh, 18 months without any charges. Sri Lanka is one of the most heavily military occupied parts of the world. And so they're subject to harassment, uh, basically don't have the best work rights compared to um, the Sinhalese majority. And, yeah, that really, really affects the, the quality of life of people who are returned back, uh, even though the government, both Australia and Sri Lanka, say that it is safe for Tamils, but um, on the ground, uh, that's just not the reality for people living there. You've written an article headed, Australia's interest in Sri Lanka extends beyond stopping Tamil refugees attempting to flee. There's a couple of things, I guess, that maybe haven't been mentioned uh, specifically in the article, but um, obviously, yeah, there's a lot more to talk about. But but a key thing is that uh, Australia wants to develop Sri Lanka into an ally and a military hub for the US and allied countries, as it's uh, particularly uh, useful uh, in, middle, in the Middle East or Asia as a port, and particularly to combat China's uh, global economic and military reach, because there's I'm sure you've uh, read there's this Australian article that came out recently by Jim Molan, who was um, the he was the uh, member of one of the leading forces in the coalition forces in Iraq, and he recently published a, an op-ed in the Australian banging war drums and saying that we need to prepare for war with China, and uh, I think that's a growing sentiment that a lot of people um, across the world in Western nations are trying to push, and I find that um, really. I find that's a bit baseless and also just um, hysteric, um, and it seems like they're just repeating the same mistakes of the war in the Middle East, of just you know perpetuating the same cycles of war. And yet, uh, yeah, Sri Lanka is a very um, is a very kind of treasured spot in that uh, it has uh, a number of key ports there, particularly Trincomalee Harbour, which is in the uh, the north of the island, which was uh, the Tamil part of the island. That can um, host really large Navy vessels. Australia, in 2019, they held uh, the Indo-Pacific Endeavour, which was a four-day military exercise between Australia and Sri Lanka, where they had uh, four large Australian Navy boats and many um, Sri Lankan boats as well. Um, They were training the Sri Lankan, uh, not just the Navy, they were training the Air Force and the military as well. And it seems like they're really, uh, you know, through through boats, through arms, through surveillance. Uh, Recently, they've given five aerial drones to the Sri Lanka police. They are really building up Sri Lanka to be uh, a formidable ally in the region. 
I don't think it's far to say that um, if there's any uh, rising tensions uh, between any other countries in that region, that um, Sri Lanka will uh, definitely play a key part in um, fulfilling any of um, uh, Australia's or the US's interests in that region. But those governments and those government members of Sri Lanka have got a very bad human rights record. Is Australia is just ignoring that? Uh, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, it, it's quite uh, uh, interesting to note that uh, Australia has uh, knocked back some key uh, Sri Lankan political uh, members who were involved, who were uh, in power during the time of the genocide in 2009. So there is some acknowledgement that, you know, there is credible uh, accusations of war crimes to these people. However, obviously, accusing a president or denying a president a visa is obviously a bigger political issue. So that hasn't happened. But uh, Australia seems to want to play it both ways. They have acknowledged, you know, when there's really, really strong evidence, they've obviously acknowledged it because it seems like they can't deny it on certain ends. But they're very willing to continue to work with um, the Rajapaksa regime, two key, two key members who were uh, in power uh, during the time of the genocide as well. And yeah, it, it seems like uh, they're very, very happy to do business with, with Sri Lanka, despite all these uh, credible claims from um, multiple human rights groups across the world. And we haven't spoken about the situation for the, the Tamils in the north and the northeast yet. That's the sad story of the ending of that war. Yeah, so uh, in the closing days of the war, the Sri Lankan military was pressing uh, into the, the north and the east, the traditional homelands of the, the Tamil people, uh, and where the um, the LTTT were, were fighting the, the government. And um, there they, uh, the Sri Lankan government said that there would be uh, certain sections where they would consider no fire zones. They asked um, the civilian population to go there, and if they went to those certain areas, they would be um, safe from government shelling. But conversely, they also asked uh, media and human rights groups to vacate those areas completely and to come into the government into the government's lands. Um, so that's obviously a bit peculiar, but um, yeah, not surprising as what followed. So then the government was shelling indiscriminately into no-fire zones where um, civilian population was. There was hospitals, there was uh, schools. The first estimates that the UN put out were saying that uh, around 70,000 people were killed, but then um, uh, a more credible uh, estimate that was put forward afterwards was at least 140,000 people were killed, civilians. And that is what we call the genocide. We hold a, um, a genocide, a Tamil Genocide Day rally around May 18, which is commemorating Mulivakal. Mulivakal is the place where um, a lot of these people were massacred. And yet, most recently, and as every year, we, we call on uh, the Australian government to stop aiding Sri Lanka in their genocidal regime, which is continuing. And we're seeking uh, justice for the Tamil people uh, in Tamililam. And not just that, the Australian government is punishing the, still punishing the refugees who have managed to come here to Australia. And just recently, they've invoked far more draconian laws for asylum seekers. Yeah, they have. It, it seems like it. And the Labor government obviously has just uh, rolled over for that and supported uh, the Liberal government anyway. Um, it's this uh, fast tracking of uh, visa, uh, not visa, but uh, fast tracking of applications for uh, refugee status as, as I know it. And that's just really detrimental because it, refugees in general, or particularly Tamil refugees, are being forced to go to court 
really, really quickly, whereas they felt like they had an, they had more time. And now, yeah, the government is trying to basically just uh, get them through as quickly as possible. And obviously, you know, we really question how effectively they can process these things if they have some really, really quick deadline in order to get these out. It doesn't seem like they're actually doing their due diligence. And it just seems like a, another instance where, where both major parties are just willing to throw refugees under the bus to kind of fulfil a quota or to um, wash their hands of um, of the very real lives of people. Um, it's very easy just to think of refugees as others. But, uh, you know, these are our friends. These are people that are living in the community currently. Like, yeah, these are people that live here. These are Australians. These are Tamil people. And they're deserving of respect uh, regardless of uh, the circumstances that brought them here. This just seems another example of Australia going against a lot of the world trend with our human rights stance and affecting so many people. I'm not particularly surprised because you know, this country uh, is finding it difficult, uh, particularly governments, is finding it really, really difficult to acknowledge the past atrocities of uh, how this country was colonised. It feels systemic that we can't even, you know, talk about our own issues. It's not surprising that there's, uh, that people, uh, the government is uh, ill-equipped to uh, talk about these things and face these things head on and actually seek uh, justice for people that were wronged and uh, to obviously make sure these things don't happen again. There, there is uh, hopeful signs um, of resistance all over the world, of Tamil communities all over the world, including uh, in the homeland of Tamil Elam where there was recent protests, about uh, 50,000 people marched uh, in February, 50,000 uh, Tamils and Muslims marched in solidarity over 700 kilometres, and they were protesting uh, the Sri Lankan government's uh, you know, draconian uh, treatment of um, minorities on the island. And that uh, is a really hopeful sign for us, and I think that um, that continued struggle is inspiring the Tamil diaspora across the world to hold... Um, the countries that we are a part of, which are continually um, contributing to the oppression of Tamils on the island, so particularly like uh, in Canada and the UK uh, and also here in Australia. Um, there's a strong Tamil community and strong um, leftist community that is uh, supporting Tamils, uh, trying to seek justice and hold our, uh, our governments to account. Um, and I think that's the only way that we will be able to do that because... Yeah, the way we can do it is uh, together and um, trying to force the government to um, uh, make concessions to us. Where are all your energies and your friends' energies at this moment? Our friends' energies uh, and myself, I guess, uh, we're focused on both individual cases uh, of advocacy of Tamil refugees and those issues, as well as uh, trying to create systemic change um, uh, we're trying to educate uh, more of the public to understand uh, the issue and uh, why they should vote a certain way and also be making considerable actions because uh, I think that um, voting is the least you can do or is just the start of your um, political actions and trying to get people more knowledgeable and uh, fighting for uh, what they believe in because you know a majority of people do agree with fair and just treatment for refugees but a lot of them just, uh, you know, don't know what, what to do or um, are a bit swayed by um, the rhetoric uh, of the government, which is really, really strong. So I think it's it's really up to us and, and other groups to try and um, put, push a more um, uh, open and inclusive agenda. Where can you direct people to find out more about this? 
Well, you can visit uh, the Tamil Refugee Council website. You can follow us on Facebook where we um, we post consistently uh, press releases and uh, information about the Tamil struggle uh, here and uh, worldwide. A great documentary, which is quite difficult to watch though, but it's called No Fire Zone, um, which details uh, the final days of the war and gives you a, a small slice as to um, what happened during that time. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. And Barathon is a member of the Tamil Refugee Council, based here in Melbourne. Ronnie Karini is well known to listeners at 3CR for his work here at the station and with the West Papua program. He is currently Canberra-based, a musician, trained diplomat and co-founder of the Rise of the Morning Star, a musical and cultural movement for self-determination. He is also involved with the United Liberation Movement of West Papua. I spoke with Ronnie yesterday, as it would appear that the Indonesian military is involved in a serious crackdown in West Papua. The situation in West Papua right now is very serious, and we are seeing region is at a flashpoint, whereby recently the Jakarta's policy is to label the movement as a terrorist organisation. At the same time, this military operation that has been happening since the end of 2018 with the death of um, road construction workers and recently as well, a couple of months ago, with the death of this senior intelligence officer, we're seeing that over 50,000 internally displaced persons from three regions in the Central Highlands has not been given any support, medical, um, local NGO access, for the current situation. We are seeing increasing deployment, internet shutdown in parts of Papua, especially in Jayapura, and also information getting out or news getting out of the region is very difficult and even access to human rights groups and foreign media into the region to really observe what is happening. With this recent, everything that is happening, this development, we are now seeing that the Jakarta approach in terms of its militaristic approach, is stepping up into a new level where now everyone seen as terrorists. Just go back for a moment to those 50,000 people. How are they surviving? Many have been still, even now we're speaking in Ilaga, they have left their villages, even districts, and many have survived in the jungle. Many died from starvation, illness, and some as we know, has been recorded up to 5,000 on record that have made from this district in, in, uh, in Duga all the way to Wamena, and that's a long walk. Like one can imagine, it takes them months to get across from Duga to Wamena. If put it in just in terms of perspective, um, it's like walking from Albury all the way down to Melbourne or South Australia. And this is mountain terrain, thick forest where you don't have any map or anything. You just follow the river and as you just walk and try to find refuge. And so up until now, central government has not declared that this is internally displaced person under international law. That nor do they want to um, claim that these are refugee forced as well within their homeland. 
and not even giving access to local NGOs to, or even medical teams to kind of like access and bring some support. So the only support that has been given is more um, deployment of security forces that are carrying out interrogations at various uh, villages to identify if any ones that are involved in the liberation army, the military wing of the movement. And there has been numerous cases of torture and shooting of some of the innocent civilians. Why would the people be safer in Wamena? Well, they seek refuge. And so that's why they have to walk that mile. But what, it, what is there to keep them safe there? It's, a big, it's a more of a big town, and there is access to local hospital. There is access more to local uh, regency government, whereas wherever they are in, in Tanjaya or Ilaga or Nduga, you have no phone connection. You have, it's only a post, military post with a medical aid sign. So basically you met with the military or security forces, and so chances of you surviving at that place is very minimal. So people know that Wamena is a bigger town, and therefore there is uh, an administrative, like a local government, and so there is a bit hope and access to basic necessities, basic needs. What does the charge of treason mean? Well, charge of treason ranging from 15 to 20 years of jail, um, torture, and confined. Uh, confined, uh, solitary confinement, that's the penalty uh, of that. And as now we know that Victor Yemo, who is, uh, was Papuan civil resistance leader, arrested on the 9th of May, he's now been charged with four charges, not related to treason, and that's four charges, and this is all involved in the anti-racism protest in August 2019. And on top of that um, is the treason charge. And up until now, he's um, left in solitary confinement, no access to legal aid, not even family allowed to visit. And the food that they're giving him is dry rice with chili. And that is affecting his in, in digestive system inside. And that's what treason looks like for uh, West Papua activists who uh, is voicing the aspiration of the people for the right to self-determination. How many people are in a similar situation? Since there has been numerous numbers at various locations, and it's very difficult to um, confirm, but since 2019, there has been, at least we know that up to 15 in Fakfak, there's two in Sorong, and then few in Jayapura, as well as um, Wamena, and then there are two student activists in Jogjakarta, all related to uh, just organizing civil protests and and basically, yeah, the political activism that has landed them in, in prison. So we're looking at over 10 to 15 um, political prisoners, basically, now um, of West Papua. Is there also a large crackdown in Indonesia itself. Is that what you're saying? Interestingly, um, Jokowi's administration has announced various different policies. One is the 
giving the right to um, the joint operation by the Air Force, Navy, and the Army, the TNI, and what they're calling it in, the, in, in, in national defense and security of nations. They've identified three strategic command areas, and there are Kalimantan, Borneo, and West Papua. For West Papua, they have leveraged on this strategic command to carry out three specific operations. One is um, response to conflict or pro prone areas, like it, places where now there's hotspot around civil resistance, the uprising, or even the, with the, um, the Liberation Army um, engagement. Second operation is more to protect state assets, such as the Freeport McMoran mining, um, BP oil, um, as well as the um, gas, and any other like logging companies that are operating foreign investments, national investments that is in throughout West Papua. And third is to protect the, in the name of national security around the border area to PNG, Australia, of possible threats more externally in the geostrategic importance. And this command specifically are carrying out another under that three operations. It's one of a specific operation called Nemankawi. Nemankawi is a language in the near the mining area in um, the Freeport McMoran called the White Arrow. And this specific operation is carried out by the Copasus, the notorious Copasus that involved a lot in a lot of operations back in 90s and 2000. They're back, and then the paramilitary elites or special units, as well as the COSTRA. These are, are operatives that are happening, and of course, the anti-terrorism unit, which Australia funded, trained, and aided. It's the Detachment 88. And so these guys, they are operating under Nemankawi operation, and so they are the ones that has been going around. The operations, they can be in uniform or in without uniform. And so they did arrested Victor Yemo, and they have been targeting a lot of Papuan civil resistance leaders as well throughout now in West Papua. And even mapping out, last week there was a special briefing around the military, and they have naming names of key actors within the movement from the military wing to the political diplomatic wing, and even within the non like civil grassroots organizations that are mobilizing and organizing people power movement. And so this is really moving towards now that crackdown, intensifying, and by cutting and shutting down the internet and phone access, that really is worrying as well. And that means that they can turn on where the internet 4G could be available and when people signed into that, that's where they ID people, and then identifying who are the prominent activists, and that's where they started hunting them down. And the use of drones as well now is common, um, getting information from the drone that few of the Papuan activists at night, they could hear this weird noise, and in the evening or early hours in the morning, and they have taken some images of drones flying about their home. So it's just creating a lot more psychological trauma amongst many of our 
Papuan friends and activists. So the Indonesian government is throwing all they've got to this. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is where they just want to silence the voice of the people. And the chief of the security, legal and political um, minister, Mahmoud, he announced last week that we will not allow any UN intervention or UN human rights commissioner, any rights groups, human rights groups or foreign media. The West Papua issue, according to national policy, is a domestic issue and we will deal with it through military means. And so basically the message is that they will not allow until they can control or stabilize the situation through military approach. So that means that it's going to come at the cost of human rights. Basically, that's their response. And so it's going to, we are seeing that this is going to be an intergenerational conflict, transgenerational trauma that the Papuans will be going through. But they already have, Ronnie. This has been going on for decades. It has been, but now with the rise of social media and information has been coming out as the fact and as we see it unfolds, they're really scrutinizing like more of their efforts to really not allowing any. So intervention will not do anything. So that means that for us as Papons now, it's re-strategizing again in the next coming months and the years. And I, I can see for myself that, you know, this struggle will continue with or without, you know, my generation. But there is outside interference, isn't there? Because you've got to look at the Australian involvement with the Indonesian military, the training of the troops, especially the special troops. Yes, there is that level of support and training. And now the current conflict with regards to the Trans-Papua Highway, there is a level of funding and money coming from the Australian taxpayers. We need investigation into this or questions at the um, estimate times coming up with the foreign affairs in question time. And that's where members of parliament really need to raise this. We've we've also raised these questions through various members of parliament, meetings coming up as well to lobby the parliamentary support for West Papua. But as again, um, in terms of the Australia's foreign policy, as far as it goes, it supports Indonesia's geostrategic and even you know, national interest. And so it will, it will basically to silence any aspirations of the people of West Papua to achieve the, the dream, the right to self-determination. And so it has to be forced. It won't have to be called or um, calling. This is where now I see that it has to be forced and whatever ways that this is going to be enforced, it has to come with a very clear uh, strategic approach uh, within the movement itself and the solidarity uh, groups, and then the supporters, especially um, at the government level, to really outline key areas to force this intervention. What level of support are you getting from the Pacific Forum countries? From the Pacific Forum countries, the level of support has been now focused around the human rights, which is important. 
and they have called, this is um, the 2019 communique that has specifically outlined that a visit of the UN Human Rights High Commissioner is of critical importance. And this remains an outstanding agenda that the leaders are yet to finalize that with the government of Indonesia, as well as the office of the UN Human Rights Council. And until then, it hasn't been, there has no been, there's no progress, of course, with the COVID last year. But it's about time now that um, Indonesia is going to appear at the Universal Periodic Review in 2022. And so it's important that Indonesia needs to finalize the timing of the visit because this um, call by the Pacific leaders, which Australia and New Zealand are member to that, is, is a regional call from the Pacific. Um, and it has been echoed by the African Caribbean Pacific bloc, which made up of 79 member states and different individual countries, um, the Netherlands, um, even UK government has come out to call. So they have added their names to the list of up to 83 countries calling for Indonesia to open their access for their visit. But as last week we hear from the chief of security, he's saying that there won't be any visit of UN as such and framing it that this is a domestic issue and we will deal with it domestically. What role is there for the Melanesian Spearhead Group? Within the Melanesian Spearhead Group, um, the movement through the United Liberation Movement for West Papua has a diplomatic ovation as an observer, and that has also kind of garnered support within the Melanesian leaders to allow this issue be discussed within that sub-regional grouping, given that um, the Kanaki uh, movement to self-determination is much alive and that also triggers the formation of the Melanesian Spearhead group back in the 80s. And so while that support is there and conversation still remains there, the flip side to is that Indonesia is an associate member, um, by which in 2011, Fiji used its prerogative as a chair to invite Indonesia onto the table. So now Indonesia is galvanized on this to also lobby for a full membership and claiming that it has the largest Melanesian population out of a combined of PNG, Solomon Island, Fiji, and um, Kanaki, and together, they, yeah, Indonesia made up the biggest and largest um, population of the Melanesian. And on top of that, they have gone ahead with the checkbook diplomacy to basically buy support. And this is pretty much bribery, but um, our recent MSG meeting through the senior official meeting, that's what Indonesia has offered as a trade-off to pay full membership of some of the countries that they cannot pay their membership fee. So that's a that's an interesting twist that um, Indonesia has been playing at the Melanesian Spearhead Group. What about Papua New Guinea? 
what are they saying about the situation right next door at this moment? A, a, a bilateral um, agreement between PNG and Indonesia around the security and the border issue. And so PNG has, has remained silent on that front when it comes to human rights or even um, situation across in West Papua. And with recent with different governments, successive um, prime ministers especially, um, they have been vocal on the issue. I remember Peter O'Neill addressed the issue in 2015 of the horrific human rights atrocities across in West Papua and have played a role to really invite West Papua leaders to be to the table at the Melanesian Spirit Group. We saw now the current Prime Minister, James Marape, has been also vocal on the issue when things flare up in 2019 with lots of um, activists escape into refuge. He did mention if this was um, one coming across the border to PNG, they, his government is willing and ready to find refuge for them. So on that front, yes, um, there is within the, as in as prime minister of the country, but within their policy, Nothing is concrete in support of a more robust approach on human rights situation, or nor do there's any kind of like a clear pathway around supporting what the formation of Melanesian State Group has been about decolonization and self-determination. So yeah, that's that's where PNG aligns itself at this stage. Finally, Ronnie. Australia is only a couple of hundred kilometres away from West Papua. What should Australians be doing to pressure their government, their politicians, to do more than what they're doing, which is very little? Yes. So for for Australians right now that we could do, the very little thing that we could do now is to write to our local members of parliament and question specifically around the taxpayers' money going towards the Australian Federal Police, supporting, training, and aiding of the Indonesian security forces. And to outline how that money from the tax has been used to support this training that now we are seeing a conflict erupting in West Papua, where the presence of this very special forces, the detachment 88, the Kupasus, the Brimob, are evidently now carrying out anti or counter insurgency or counter operations against peaceful activists. And the arrest of Victor Yemo is a testament to the support that Australia taxpayers money going into. And this includes the Trans Papua Highway, the 4,000 kilometers um, highway um, that there needs to be an investigation of the money, the role that Australian funds have been used in the region to create the conflict or to prolong the conflict in the, in the region. So write to local MPs. Join the solidarity movement or join the campaign through in Melbourne. There is the Docklands, um, uh, the, the office. They have done amazing work and there's a lot of lobby happening to the parliamentarians members of parliament in Victoria, 
and also throughout um, Australia. So support this campaign. Um, they have a rent collective. Check out their Facebook or their website, um, the Defied Federal Republic of West Papua plays a very critical role in political diplomatic and front. And and so yeah, that's one. And yeah, happy for anyone to make contact with me. My number and I'm on Facebook as well, Ronnie Kareni, um, to 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 generate conversations more, to organize forums and discussions or to build more awareness around this issue. And this is similar to any other indigenous or First Nation struggles or what's happening in Palestine, the sovereignty issue, the neo-settler colonialism that we're all facing within our land. And so there are a lot of parallels to create those solidarity conversations. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you, Jen. West Papuan activist Ronnie Kareni, now based in Canberra. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.